This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Hello and welcome, everybody, on this cold morning. I'm Wynne Burkle, uh, uh, director of the Rand Corporation's Office of Congressional Relations here in D.C. Uh, It's my pleasure to welcome you to this Rand briefing on making sense of nuclear negotiations with Iran, a good deal or a bad deal. So let me tell you just for a second about the briefing itself you're going to see today. Um, Negotiations between Iran and the P5 plus 1 have resulted in a first step agreement, as you're all aware, of a possible comprehensive deal on the Iranian nuclear program. So is this a good deal or a bad deal? This is a question that's being asked not only um, uh, with, throughout the nation, but especially in the halls of Congress. So indeed, aspects of the deal have proved controversial among some, not only with U.S. allies, such as Israel and Saudi Arabia, but with some members of Cong- US, the U.S. Congress as well. So what should we make of the agreement? Good, bad, is the jury still out? And if it's bad, are there realistic alternatives that are any better? So today we're going to hear from a panel of experts examining the negotiations, the interim agreement, the potential for a more permanent deal, um, and implications for U.S. national security. Our panelists today, um, Ali Reza Nader is a senior policy analyst with the RAND Corporation, specializing in Iran's political dynamics, elite decision-making, and Iranian foreign policy. Uh, Daryl Kimball, to his left, is executive director of the Arms Control Association, and he's a recognized leader in the policy debate on weapons proliferation, nuclear arms control, and non-proliferation. Our third panelist, Paul Pilar, is an adjunct senior fellow of the Center for Senior Security Studies, pardon me, at Georgetown University, who spent nearly three decades uh, in the U.S. intelligence community and in a variety of analytical and managerial positions with a focus on the Near East, Persian Gulf, and South Asia. And Paul is on the metro in Virginia, which is very slow with the cold weather this morning. So we're hoping that he'll be here a little bit later, but we're going to start with uh, Ali and with uh, Daryl as well. So with that, let me kick it off to you guys. Morning. Thanks a lot, Wen. Thank you for coming to this briefing on a very, very cold day. Uh, I'm just going to briefly talk about the political dynamics in Iran uh, and how some of the U.S., uh, policy choices, including new sanctions under con- consideration by the U.S. Senate, could impact uh, what's going on in Iran. Uh, of course, the Geneva deal uh, that was signed in November uh, was uh, started a couple of days ago. Uh, Iran has so far taken positive steps in limiting its nuclear program, and Daryl is going to talk about the details of that uh, uh, after my presentation, so I won't get into great detail. But I do think uh, that uh, Geneva uh, is a first positive step. I think we have a long way to go. Uh, and, and the debate regarding new sanctions against Iran, uh, it's often claimed that sanctions played a very important role in bringing Iran to the negotiation table, that uh, without sanctions, Iran would not have uh, shown more flexibility uh, and really offered concessions on the nuclear program. And I think that is true, but only partially true. Uh, when we look at uh, Iran's uh, change of policy on the nuclear program, I think another very important factor is the fact that Iranian politics has changed in the last six months, especially with the election of Hassan Rouhani as Iran's president uh, in June. Now, uh, Hassan Rouhani was falsely labeled as a wolf in sheep's clothing. 
And while he is no liberal Democrat, he's a member of the Iranian establishment, he's a conservative cleric, he is very serious about achieving some objectives that meet U.S. interests as well. I think Rouhani wants to make sure that Iran is not as isolated internationally. Uh, he campaigned on improving Iran's dire economic situation. So Iranians are really looking for him to improve uh, the economy. And he has uh, promised that he would uh, decrease the sense of repression in Iran and uh, open up Iran more uh, politically and socially. And we'll have to wait to see uh, if he can deliver uh, that. But so far, uh, he has led a change in Iran's policy on the nuclear program. And Rouhani, as Iran's president, and the president of Iran is a consequential figure. He's the most, uh, second most powerful uh, person within the system. But as Iran's president, Rouhani has built a consensus within the system. He has convinced more powerful figures, such as the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, that this is the way to go, that if Iran is more flexible on the nuclear program, uh, then Rouhani will be able to lift sanctions and improve the economy. Uh, so he has the support of the system. Opposition to him from more conservative members has been relatively muted. And so going forward, he's in a relatively strong position. I believe that passing new sanctions after the Geneva deal could undermine his position in Iran because new sanctions demonstrate that if the Rouhani government offers concessions, then it will only be met with further pressure. And I think this could weaken uh, Rouhani's position. Uh, it could confirm Ayatollah Khamenei's suspicions that the United States is not interested in solving the nuclear issue, but just wants to punish the Iranian regime and possibly uh, overthrow it uh, through sanctions. Also, uh, we hear quite a bit uh, from people who propose more sanctions at this point against Iran that uh, the Iranian regime is in a weak position, that if we tighten the screws even a little more, that we'll get greater concessions. But I don't think this is necessarily true. The Iranian economy uh, may be in a terrible uh, condition, but the Iranian government is not on its knees at this point. Uh, yes, oil exports are down, inflation is high, the currency is relatively weak, uh, but the economy still functions, albeit poorly, but it is functioning. And uh, some believe that we can use sanctions that, to pressure Iran on other issues as well, whether it's human rights uh, or preventing Iran from testing ballistic missiles. But I would make the argument that uh, if we expect uh, the Iranian government to completely change its behavior, this is not going to be achieved through sanctions. For example, if we want Iran to abandon Hezbollah or improve human rights, sanctions are not necessarily the tool for this. I, I think for Ayatollah Khamenei and the political system in Iran, abandoning Hezbollah, introducing reforms within the political system, at a rapid pace, could be even worse than increased sanctions. Uh, so when we look at sanctions, they, they have a limited effect in achieving some of the U.S. Uh, objectives. I don't think Ayatollah Khamenei is going to increase uh, Iranians' uh, human rights and political freedoms because he's feeling economic pressure. He's not going to abandon Iran's position in the Middle East just because of 
sanctions. And ultimately, I believe that what sanctions at this point could do, new sanctions being considered by the U.S. Senate, is to make the job of the U.S. negotiators more difficult. Uh, not just by undermining Rouhani's position, but demonstrating to the other members of the P5 plus one, uh, the UN Security Council in Germany that are negotiating with Iran, that the United States is not sincere about resolving the current nuclear crisis through negotiations. Right now, uh, a lot of different countries are eager to go back into the Iranian market and reestablish economic ties with Iran, specifically China and Russia, uh, which are both big Iranian partners. And the Iranian government wants to loosen sanctions uh, and resume trade ties with these countries. And ultimately, if sanctions are passed, China and Russia could conclude that the United States is not serious about negotiations and that uh, any future Iranian flexibility will just be met with more sanctions. So why go on uh, with the sanctions regime? And there have been reports of Iran and Russia, for example, negotiating a barter agreement, which could significantly uh, loosen the sanctions regime. Uh, So in conclusion, I think the U.S. Congress, the U.S. Senate should hold off on sanctions for now uh, until uh, negotiations come to a conclusion. Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that at this point uh, we're in a good position. Uh, There's no guarantee. I think there could be many obstacles in the future, and uh, there could be many ups and downs. Uh, But to just look at sanctions as an automatic tool that just increases pressure and gets results doesn't really uh, reflect what is going on in Iran, but also internationally. I'm going to turn it over to Daryl for his presentation. All right, well, thank you very much, um, and thank you uh, to Rand for the invitation to uh, speak about the uh, first phase uh, uh, nuclear agreement between the P5 plus one countries uh, and Iran and the next steps uh, in the negotiations towards a final phase agreement. So as many of you saw this week, uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency confirmed that uh, Iran has begun to implement Uh, the measures uh, outlined in the November 24 Joint Plan of Action that was negotiated with the P5 plus 1 states. Uh, The IAEA reported on Monday uh, that as of uh, Monday, uh, Iran has halted uranium enrichment above normal fuel grade levels. That means uh, more than 5% uranium-235. That's very important. Uh, they confirmed that Iran is continuing the conversion of material enriched up to 20% uh, U-235 uh, into uranium oxides, a different form, and Iran has begun diluting uh, material uh, enriched up to 20% um, uh, at another facility. Uh, the IAEA confirmed that Iran has stopped the installation of more advanced centrifuge machines. They are currently using something called the IR-1 Uh, They have been experimenting with uh, something called the IR-2M centrifuge, which is more uh, efficient, uh, and uh, therefore it's more worrisome because it can enrich at a faster pace uh, and uh, accelerate the theoretical breakout uh, timeline. Uh, The IAEA also confirmed that uh, Iran has halted major construction work at the Iraq Heavy Water Reactor Project, Uh, Iraq uh, is a a type of a reactor uh, about a year away from construction. 
heavy water reactors are better suited to plutonium production, uh, which can be extracted from the spent fuel. Uh, so uh, the halt of the major uh, construction work at Iraq uh, is an important uh, uh, step because it pauses uh, progress uh, along the, the uh, theoretical plutonium uh, track to a bomb. Uh, and finally, uh, the other key thing that the IEA confirmed is that Iran uh, is not carrying out reprocessing-related activities. Iran doesn't have a reprocessing facility. Reprocessing is the process by which uh, you uh, separate plutonium from spent fuel. So the IAEA also confirmed that Iran has committed to and has begun implementing new transparency measures uh, in addition to the existing comprehensive safeguards uh, that have been in place there. Uh, that means the IAEA now has daily rather than weekly access uh, and inspectors at the key uh, Iranian nuclear facilities, including Natanz and Fordo, uh, the, the enrichment facilities. Uh, they have access, the IAEA does, to centrifuge assembly and production facilities, uh, and that's important because it guards against uh, the uh, illicit, secret uh, manufacture of centrifuge machines that could theoretically be sent to another secret facility. So that's going to give the IAEA uh, a better sense uh, that that is not going on. Um, the Iranians are going to be providing more updated information on their facilities, updated design information, and providing access to the, IA, uh, to, the IAEA, to its uranium mines and mills, uh, which is also helpful. So in in exchange for all that, the, uh, the, uh, the P5 plus 1 states will be extending limited reversible sanctions relief from certain uh, existing sanctions, um, and they have ag agreed to refrain from additional sanctions. That's written into the November 24 uh, joint uh, statement. Uh, and meanwhile, the, the core sanctions regime is going to uh, remain in place, including uh, the very tough uh, financial uh, and oil sanctions against Iran that's going to provide the P5 plus 1 with substantial leverage in the next phase. So what does all of this do? Uh, I would say in sum, these steps, which are the first verifiable uh, limits on Iran's uh, nuclear potential in over a decade since they voluntarily agreed to suspend uranium enrichment in the 2003-2005 period, is uh, a imp very important uh, uh, step forward for nonproliferation. Uh, why? Because by halting 20% uh, enrichment, converting and diluting the excess 20% uranium stockpile, freezing the additional um, centrifuges, um, uh, installation of additional centrifuges, by the end of the six-month period of this first phase agreement, uh, it is going to add several weeks to the uh, notional timeline uh, for Iran to uh, produce enough fissile material uh, to produce one uh, nuclear weapon. Uh, so uh, without the first phase limits in place, with 10,000 operating IR-1 centrifuges, with the use of its entire 20% stockpile and 3.5% uranium stockpile, um, Iran could produce 25 kilograms of weapons-grade uranium in about nine to 10 weeks. Uh, so this agreement pushes that, uh, increases that amount of time uh, by several weeks, maybe to 14, 15 weeks, or even longer. So that's uh, a, a, an important uh, step forward. This agreement is not everything uh, either side wanted. 
Um, that's why it's a first phase agreement. But it, it clearly is a step forward in pausing Iran's progress. Um, the other thing it does is it creates time for negotiations on a comprehensive solution um, uh, because it's pausing the most worrisome Iranian uh, nuclear activities. Uh, so those negotiations are expected to begin uh, again next month. That is the P5 plus one group, uh, the French, the Chinese, the British, the Russians, and the United States uh, and the UK, uh, along with the Iranians. Um, the agreement reached in November outlines some of the key issues, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what some of the key issues for the final phase of negotiations are going to be and what, in our view, is... Uh, uh, practical and necessary to uh, prevent a nuclear-armed Iran. Um, so the agreement reached in November uh, states that Iran's um, uranium enrichment program uh, will be limited. Uh, it says specifically that it should be consistent with practical needs. Uh, so it doesn't say there should be there, there should be zero enrichment. It says it should be limited. Um, uh, the two sides are going to have to work hard to define what limitations uh, there will be and what practical needs uh, mean. Uh, f- for all intents and purposes, right now, from our perspective, Iran has uh, 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 a need to enrich uranium that's pretty close to zero. Uh, uranium enrichment, uh, for peaceful purposes, is, is, is used to produce nuclear fuel for power reactors. Uh, Iran has one reactor, the Bushir reactor, that's being supplied. Its fuel is being supplied by Russia. Uh, Iran has plans for dozens more uh, reactors in the future, but they're quite a long way off. So uh, their, their needs right now are close to zero, zero, but they could grow in the coming years. So uh, one way to look at this is that and uh, how to limit and what's necessary is to look at the number of centrifuges Iran currently has operating. Uh, it has eight, about 10,000 operating IR-1 centrifuges. It has another uh, 9,000 that are installed but are not operating. Um, if the two sides could, in the final phase agreement, uh, agree to reduce the total number of operating centrifuges uh, by um, you know, two-thirds, uh, down to about three to 4,000 operating IR-1 centrifuges or their equivalent, uh, that would be more than sufficient for Iran's uh, current and its potential nuclear fuel production needs. It would also increase the time it would take for Iran, if it chose to do so, to break out of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and produce fissile material. It would increase it uh, by at least six months and probably much longer than that, giving the international community uh, more than enough time to respond to any Iranian decision in the future to pursue nuclear weapons. Uh, so that's one way to look at this. Uh, Iran is, is uh, not uh, going to agree to zero enrichment. Uh, they're going to maintain that they have a right to pursue peaceful nuclear activities uh, as allowed for in Article 4 of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. Uh, the P5 plus 1 states... Um, uh, have not formally recognized that Iran has a quote-unquote right to enrichment, but they are recognizing uh, the fact that Iran has a substantial uranium enrichment capacity uh, and that it is, uh, as Ali was saying, uh, politically uh, infeasible for Hassan Rouhani 
uh, to capitulate to Western demands that uh, Iran not have any enrichment capacity. So that's one area where there can and should be compromise that um, would fulfill our goal of um, setting back Iran's nuclear capacity substantially. Second key issue is going to be the fate of the Fordo enrichment facility, the second of the two enrichment facilities. This is the one that's underground. It's smaller than the Khan's. It's worrisome uh, in particular because it's underground. It's less uh, vulnerable to airstrikes. Uh, the P5 plus one have suggested uh, earlier in, in the negotiations in 2013 that the Fordo facility be closed. Iran is not going to go along with that. Uh, one possible outcome is that the two sides might agree to effectively halt any uh, significant uranium enrichment at Fordo, that it be converted to a research facility with very limited um, uh, installed uh, centrifuge capacity uh, and remain under safeguards. A third key issue in the final phase of negotiations is going to be uh, preventing the so-called plutonium track to the bomb. As I said, the Iraq heavy water reactor is a potential proliferation uh, threat down the road. Um, the P5 plus one countries have uh, called upon Iran to uh, stop this project cold. Uh, Iran uh, sees the Iraq facility uh, with special pride. Uh, it is a facility that has been built with Iranian uh, technology. Um, there's going to have to be a compromise here also. Uh, there are ways in which the two sides could agree to convert this facility from a heavy water uh, reactor to a light water reactor that's more proliferation resistant than a heavy water reactor. Or even another alternative would be to find a way to dispose of the spent nuclear fuel from uh, the Iraq heavy water reactor uh, in another country, a third country, say Russia, all under safeguards. And that would remove the plutonium um, from literally from the territory of Iran in that spent fuel. Last but not least, the P5 plus one are also gonna to have to seek to persuade Iran to allow even more extensive IAEA inspection authority to guard against a secret weapons program. Uh, as Paul might uh, say, the uh, most likely way in which Iran might pursue the bomb in the future is not uh, by breaking out publicly from the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and trying to dash to produce fissile material uh, for nuclear weapons at its declared uh, enrichment facilities at Natanz and Fordow, which are under safeguards, but through a secret program at undeclared facilities. Uh, right now, the International Atomic Energy Agency has a good comprehensive safeguards regime in place. It's been improved with the first phase deal. But what we need to increase our confidence that Iran is not pursuing a secret program at a uh, undisclosed uranium enrichment facility is um, uh, inspections under the terms of the IAEA additional protocol, which essentially gives the agency access to non-declared sites uh, without much prior notification. And that provides a very strong deterrent against any possible cheating by a country like Iran. Uh, so that's going to be very important. Uh, Iran um, uh, knows that that's going to be on the table. Um, there may be some other proposals for um, uh, what is referred to as additional protocol plus, uh, ins uh, additional inspections on top of the additional protocol. Iran is likely going to resist that because their mantra in these negotiations is that they will not uh, agree to any uh, practices or standards that go beyond what other 
members of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty are expected to do. So final issue, which is actually outside of the P5 plus 1 uh, in Iran track, are the discussions between Iran and the International Atomic Energy Agency about uh, experiments that Iran is strongly suspected of uh, being engaged in uh, about a decade ago uh, that are known as uh, the, the PMD experiments, experiments with potential military dimensions. Uh, the agency in Iran just reached an agreement back in November, November 11th to be exact, uh, outlining a new approach to dealing with the IAEA's long-stalled investigation of these uh, activities. Uh, now, Iran is highly unlikely, even if it did conduct these activities, which have weapons uh, applications, to acknowledge that they did. Uh, Hassan Rouhani, the Supreme Leader, have always said that the program, uh, Iran's nuclear program, is strictly for peaceful purposes. Um, and so it's very unlikely that uh, the, the agency is going to get cooperation, let alone acknowledgement from Iran that uh, Iran did conduct these activities that, that have military dimensions. What is more likely and really what is necessary to prevent a nuclear armed Iran is for the IAEA to get a sufficient amount of information from the Iranians about those activities and their current activities to ensure that uh, those types of experiments are no longer going on. That's what matters more than anything right now to make sure that uh, Iran is not uh, secretly pursuing a weapons program. So uh, negotiating an agreement along these lines is going to be extremely difficult. Uh, the next six months of negotiations between the P5 plus one and Iran uh, are going to make the uh, first phase negotiations uh, look something like a cakewalk. Uh, it's going to be complicated enough um, juggling all these issues between uh, those six parties uh, and uh, I would agree with uh, some of Ali's remarks about uh, the role of Congress. I mean, legislators need to be careful not to complicate the process any more uh, than it already is. And, and I would say uh, unequivocally that uh, legislation such as S-1881, which was introduced over on the Senate side uh, by Senator Bob Menendez, uh, New Jersey, Mark Kirk of Illinois, co-sponsored by 57 other senators, may be well-intentioned, uh, but it would, it would sabotage uh, the progress achieved so far uh, and severely complicate the final phase negotiations. The authors of the bill argue that uh, we need to have this legislation in place uh, with sanctions ready to go at the end of the six-month period in case these negotiations fail. I and others would say that uh, if those negotiations fail, it will be easy enough for Congress to put in place additional sanctions as necessary, uh, a better time to evaluate what kinds of sanctions are appropriate uh, is at the time that those negotiations might fail. Uh, the other thing that I think that's misleading about the legislation is that if you look at the, the requirements, uh, it does add to the requirements uh, that Iran has to take in order for the president to be able to waive sanctions. Uh, that go beyond the terms of the November 24 uh, nuclear agreement. Uh, so it, it effectively would put new sanctions into play in the six-month period, uh, and that very likely would lead Iranian legislators to take um, retaliatory steps. It would make it more difficult for uh, Hassan Rouhani to pursue a sensible agreement. Uh, it would harden the Iranian position 
the negotiations would likely break down and the risk of conflict would be even greater. Uh, the risk of a nuclear-armed Iran could be even greater. So um, I think the, the legislation may be well-intentioned, but I think people need to take a careful look at this. Uh, and also we need to, to have a, a clear-eyed view about what's practical and necessary to prevent a nuclear-armed Iran. The other thing that 1881 does, S-1881 does, is it tries to outline what the terms of the final phase agreement are. And if you look carefully, it essentially calls for zero enrichment in Iran and the complete dismantlement of Iran's major nuclear facilities. Uh, that's a non-starter. It might have been possible a decade ago when Iran had, uh, in 2005, 300 operating centrifuges. As I said, today Iran has 10,000. Um, so zero enrichment, while it's an ideal outcome from a non-proliferation perspective, it's what I would like to see. Uh, we're past that point, unfortunately, and we're going to have to uh, do our very best, the negotiators are going to have to do their very best to ratchet back Iran's enrichment capacity in this final phase agreement. So uh, in conclusion, the, 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 with the implementation of the final phase deal, uh, the P5 plus one have pushed back uh, Iran's progress. Um, we're going to have to carefully uh, monitor implementation. Uh, the first phase deal builds in a mechanism for uh, reimposing sanctions uh, or holding back on uh, some of the, uh, the frozen assets uh, if Iran is not complying. We're going to be looking at the IAEA reports that are going to come out every month uh, to monitor Iran's compliance with implementation with the first phase uh, steps. Uh, and the negotiators are going to have to get to work very quickly because six months uh, is not a, a very long period of time to deal with a very complicated uh, agreement such as the one that I just outlined. So let me stop there and turn it over to Paul. We're glad to see you. And Okay. Uh, thank you and good morning. Let me apologize for arriving late. There was a broken down train on the subway and so my fellow passengers and I who were in one of the trains backed up spent some quality time in a tunnel in Virginia that we hadn't counted on uh, in a train that wasn't moving for at least a half hour. Um, it's a privilege to uh, share this platform with Ali and Daryl, although I missed uh, all of Ali's presentation and part of Daryl's. I've, I've heard them before, and I can uh, assure you you've got uh, the best expertise you can get on the topics that they addressed of internal Iranian politics and uh, the details of the uh, agreement that Daryl just spoke to. Uh, I was asked to uh, speak a little bit about the regional implications and issues of Iran's relations with other regional states as it fits into this whole negotiating process. And I would start with the observation that we're talking mainly about long-term implications, the sorts of things that would happen if this negotiating process succeeds in arriving at a final agreement. But we've already seen some short-term um, reactions. Uh, the Arab states of the Gulf Cooperation Council, for example, uh, were generally favorable in their uh, official reactions to the Joint Plan of Action when it was announced last November. And Foreign Minister Zarif of Iran, uh, shortly after that, had a successful uh, tour of four of the six GCC states in which there were quite a few positive vibrations that came out of that. 
this whole process, uh, the, the longer-term negotiating process, especially if it does result in a final agreement, would basically be a step toward Iran resuming a normal relationship as a regional state. And that's not so much because of the direct material effects of having sanctions lifted if that happens, although there will obviously be some uh, uh, result of the uh, boost that that would give to uh, the economic health of Iran. It's more a matter of a vaguer sense of diplomatic momentum and of what is proper or improper or considered proper or improper in dealings with Iran. Is it a pariah state to be shunned or is it a normal state uh, with which one negotiates and bargains? Basically, it's looking ahead to the latter uh, state of affairs if this uh, process uh, is carried through to a successful conclusion. The Iranian leadership wants normal relations with the rest of the region. And this is a regime that in its three and a half decades has evolved considerably from the early days after the Iranian revolution in which you saw a lot of, shall we say, revolutionaries' nervousness about whether their own revolution would survive if they didn't see like-minded revolutions in nearby states. Well, now the Islamic Republic has been around for some 35 years. They don't worry about that so much. Um, and I think one recent uh, test of this is what's going on in Bahrain, uh, the state that's probably mentioned more than any other as, as a, uh, a target of feared Iranian subversion. And in the past, the Iranians were doing things there. But I think more recently, even though there's, there's no doubt that the Iranians uh, have their sympathies and they openly express them with the Shia majority uh, that is ruled by the uh, Sunni regime in, in Bahrain, and even though the uh, Bahraini uh, government has continued to make some accusations about an Iranian role, I am not aware of any uh, reliable evidence indicating uh, that Iran has been doing in Bahrain um, subversive things, anything beyond expressing uh, their uh, more moral support to the Shia majority. Iran, even as a more normal regional state, will continue to have some shared and some divergent interests with each of its neighbors. And most of these interests, including the divergent ones, uh, have been around for quite some time, even going back to the time of the Shah. They are not dependent on the internal political nature of Iran. This nuclear issue, though, because it's been so salient and has become the prime issue in Iran's relations with the United States and the West, it has tended to get in the way of everything else. And so the other more normal uh, divergent and convergent uh, issues uh, that neighbors tend to have with each other have, have gotten overshadowed. Once the nuclear issue gets resolved, then these other uh, sets of interest will become more important. Now, let's look at the Gulf Arab states for a moment. There are shared interests between Iran and the GCC states in regional stability. There is not a desire for the kind of uh, instability, especially that would result from military action, that would, among other things, disrupt the oil trade. And I must say, there has been a lot of misconception here about 
official Gulf Arab views as to how they think the United States ought to deal with this nuclear situation. Uh, misconceptions based on um, uh, phrases in leaked cables and so on. I would refer you to someone like Prince Turkey, the former Saudi ambassador and longtime head of Saudi intelligence, um, once ambassador here in Washington, who has stated repeatedly that military action in the Gulf would be a disaster from his point of view and from Saudi Arabia's point of view as well. There will continue to be some divergent interests on oil matters. Uh, we've seen this for many years. Uh, interests that uh, are not quite the same because when you compare Iran and Saudi Arabia, in particular the two big ones, uh, they have different uh, sizes of oil reserves. Their finances have been in different um, uh, situations. And so in, for years and years in OPEC meetings, uh, we've seen uh, different preferences with regard to pricing and production, and we will continue to see those sorts of differences, although I dare say I think th those differences have been diminished somewhat in more recent years because Saudi finances have gotten tighter and because uh, all of the OPEC producers are now being uh, challenged in a way by shale oil production here in the United States. But there will still be differences um, with the Gulf Arabs. Uh, there is the territorial dispute uh, with the United Arab Emirates over uh, three small islands in the Persian Gulf that remains unsettled. That will still be there. And you certainly have strong sectarian sentiments as they apply to conflicts, no, most notably uh, the one in Syria, in which you basically have uh, Shia Iran and uh, the Sunni Gulf Arab countries, as far as their, their ruling regimes are concerned, rooting for different sides and backing different sides. And there's no reason to expect that that is going to change um, once the nuclear issue is resolved. But I'd note once again, these are all divisions uh, and differing interests that would be there regardless of the nature of the regime in Iran. One last word about the Gulf Arabs. Uh, there has been a pattern for many years of the Gulf Arabs, the Saudis and the others, having their own forms of rapprochement and accommodation with Iran. Again, in the interest of regional stability while trying to preserve their more peculiar interests. Uh, the Saudis have had uh, uh, periods of, of dialogue and rapprochement that have blown hot and cold over the years. Um, but for the most part, they have uh, tended to um, adapt to reality and adapt to, among other things, uh, reality that uh, reflects U.S. relations um, with Iran. And I think this would be the case as well if we had a more normal U.S.-Iranian relationship with the nuclear issue settled. Let me say a couple of words about Israel. Um, if we get past the what is the clear and repeatedly voiced um, posture of hostility between these two states and look to the more enduring and fundamental Israeli and Iranian interests, one can see a significant basis for cooperation and even in limited ways partnership based on the fact that Israel and Iran along with Turkey are the significant non-Arab powers in a largely Arab region. And this has been reflected in 
past historical uh, periods as well, not only in the time of the Shah, but even after the revolution, such as during the Iran-Iraq war, in which Israel's preference, as far as U.S. policy was concerned, was for us to tilt toward the Iranians rather than toward the Iraqis, which is what the U.S. was doing for most of that war. A specific issue that will continue to get in the way, as long as it is unsettled, is the Palestinian issue. And Tehran will certainly continue to be vocal about that, both because of genuine sympathy for the plight of the Palestinians, but also because of their awareness of how well and how strongly this issue plays in the Arab world. Having said that, though, uh, Iran has no interest in being, shall we say, more Palestinian than the Palestinians. And so if this issue were to be resolved, uh, there is really no interest that the Iranians would have anymore in taking even a hostile rhetorical line toward Israel on that particular question. If it is, and I believe it is, a fundamental long-term interest of the state of Israel to live in peace and security with all of its neighbors, then the current diplomatic process with Iran and conclusion of a final nuclear agreement is very much in Israel's interest. There is simply no way in which Israel can get closer to that goal of living in peace and security with all of its neighbors if the United States and Iran are locked in a relationship of perpetual hostility, whether it's over the nuclear question or anything else. And that leads me to my final set of remarks, uh, which has to do with the role of the U.S. and the effect of this diplomatic process on U.S. regional diplomacy. A successful final agreement on the nuclear question would be, because of the way this nuclear issue has gotten in the way of everything else, an important step toward unshackling U.S. diplomacy, not just toward Iran, but toward the whole Middle East. And just as with those other regional states, such as I was discussing a moment ago regarding the Gulf Arabs, you could then have more of a normal give and take between Washington and Tehran over a variety of issues, on some of which our interests converge and on others of which our interests will diverge. One set of interests that would continue to diverge would be the continued Iranian sectarian-based interest in any contest in the region that pit Shia versus Sunni, such as Syria, but maybe elsewhere as well. The United States simply does not have that interest. There is no reason for the United States to feel itself on one side or the other of that particular sectarian divide in the same way that Shia-majority Iran does. We will still have and always will have some divergent interest on oil matters, although I take note of uh, something the Iranian oil minister said about a month ago. He said basically, uh, well, once if we get out from under sanctions, uh, we intend to start pumping away like crazy. Um, and, uh, you know, that was not a welcome uh, uh, statement to uh, the Saudis and the other producers, but I would think it uh, ought to be music to the ears of most of the U.S. economy. 
Moreover, uh, stability in a broader sense uh, in the oil market and the oil trade, certainly in the physical sense of not being disrupted by military action or terrorist attacks or that sort of thing, is also a shared interest between oil-producing Iran and the United States. Stability in a larger political and security sense is also, to a large degree, a shared interest that the United States and Iran would be freer to uh, explore and act on if the nuclear question can be resolved. The best precedent for all of this uh, concerns Afghanistan during a few brief months in late 2001 and early 2002, in which Iranian and U.S. diplomats worked closely together uh, to midwife the, uh, the birth of a new uh, Afghanistan political order, the, uh, the government that would be led by Hamid Karzai. And the Iranians, uh, I think it's fair to say, hoped and expected that that cooperation would continue. Afghanistan itself is still today and will be in the years ahead another area where there are very much parallel interests between Tehran and Washington with regard to the overall stability uh, of that country and to a considerable degree um, the political makeup of the, of the uh, governing order there. Something of the same thing could be said about Iraq on the other side of Iran. Uh, now that Iraq uh, is governed by a Shia-dominated government that has uh, <coughs> friendly relations with Iran, Iran is much more of a status quo power than it has been in the past. Uh, without U.S. troops there, there is not a vulnerability uh, that Iran may look at as uh, something that they can exploit against us. And Neither Iran nor the United States uh, has an interest in continuing endless bloodshed of an unrestricted sort uh, in Iraq. <coughs> On Syria, we still will have uh, the obvious differences that we have today, uh, but I would note here, with regard to Iran's overall posture towards Syria, that the better are Iran's general regional relations, with the Gulf Arabs, with everyone else in the region, as well as with us, the less important the relationship with the Assad regime will be to Iran. And I should note, uh, as a historical detail, but not, not an insignificant one, that the original basis for this um, odd couple relationship between Syria and Iran was a shared antipathy with the Saddam Hussein regime in Iraq, which of course is no longer a factor. And so there are a number of ways that the Syrian story can go, but in some of them I would say uh, the, the Assad regime, far from being an asset, would be, if anything, more of a, a liability. One last concluding point. Um, a normal relationship Iran, with Iran, or something close to a normal relationship, I'm not getting into the details of you know, a formal, full diplomatic relations, um, but whether we have that or not, if we can deal more normally with this regime on things other than just the nuclear issue, that would help to 
unleash U.S. diplomacy in many other ways in the rest of the region in that it would be an extra source of leverage for the United States in dealing with everyone else in the region. Uh, that is to say, not that Iran would become some new ally of, uh, or even a partner in a, the way we use those uh, terms normally, but at least it would be another way that the United States would have of pursuing its own interest with the region, a way that uh, has not been open, us, open to us at all as long as um, we've simply had no dealings with Iran. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.